was at the beginning. I've never had one at the end, so I really <laughs> appreciate it. I think I have it at the beginning. It's really lovely to be here with you this morning and uh, to have this day together, particularly because the title of the day is not a particularly what some people call sexy title. It's not sort of healing and miracles and learning to fly in the spirit or cartwheels for Jesus. It's not anything, you know, that is sort of zippity-doo. But I, will, I want to say that I think if we grasp today the issues we're going to be talking about and take a hold of them in our lives by the Holy Spirit, it will radically transform this whole neighborhood in the next few years. So it may not be a, 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 a that sort of exciting title, but if you grasp it, it'll be life-changing, not only for ourselves, but it will be for the whole neighborhood. It's lovely to be here. Lois and I are fairly relaxed at the moment because we've just got back from a holiday. We've been, uh, we're celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary. I it's okay. That's, I think, an applause for Lois rather than me <laughs> for endurance. But anyway, uh, yeah, we went on a cruise. Uh, I don't know if you've been on a cruise. We were the, we were the youth group on the cruise. And, uh, <laughs> uh, it was really funny. This is what people do, you know, when they get into their 60s. They go on cruises. It was actually stunning, and we went to Ephesus on the way, which was fabulous to be and stand where Paul, with three million other people in the heat, standing where Paul had, had stood, but it was uh, a, a, a great joy. By the way, I've met quite a few people who we've known over the years here today, and I just want to apologize that when you get, as you know, when you get a little bit older, uh, you, you recognize people, but you can't remember names. So if you introduce yourself, say, hey, I'm Jim, or Fred, and I say, oh, I know that. I don't, actually. I'm lying, but I just want you to... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's this easy. It's very easy to forget forget names. I'm sure you do it um, all the time. There was an elderly couple, much older than Lois and I, who um, had both been widowed, and they met one another and fell in love. And one din night after dinner, the husband said to this, the man said to this woman, he said, Enid, he said, would you marry me? And she said, yes. It's a lovely story. And uh, the next morning, he woke up, and he couldn't remember whether she'd said yes or no. <laughs> and, uh, but he didn't want to ask her, because it's very embarrassing, you know. So he... He said, I, so anyway, he knew he had to because he had to press on with this thing. So he rang her and he said, um, Enid, I don't know if you remember, I, last night I, I proposed, proposed to you. I couldn't remember whether you said yes or no. And she said, thank goodness you've rung. She said, I remember last night saying yes to somebody, but I couldn't remember who it was. <laughs> so we had to be quite careful, really. There are ways, of course, to learn this. You, you know, the, the best way is word association. You, you link words in with, with things. There's a, an older couple who went on a course to learn this, and when he got back, they invited another couple round, and the two guys were standing in the living room, and one said to the other, he said, Fred, he said, what was the name of that course he went on, the, you know, the memory course thing? He said, oh, he said, I can't for life of me remember what it was. <laughs> and uh, so his wife was standing in the kitchen, and he, he called over to her, and, and um, he looked at her, and he turned to the man, and he said, um, what's the name of that plant, that flower that's got sort of prickles on it, and, and it's lovely, beautiful sort of uh, smelling heads. He said, it's called a rose. He said, oh yeah. Rose, he said, what was the name of that course we went on? <laughs> but you have to do this all the time because um, that's what happens to you. But it's, it's great to be here. In fact, we know this area a little bit, but we've got to know um, um, Phil and Edward and Mike and various others over the years, and it's really lovely to have that relationship. And Lois and I have lived in Birmingham for 40 years which isn't quite as bad as you think. We, we actually learned to love it. We live in South Birmingham, it's been great. We have at times thought about moving out of Birmingham, but our, our children live there with the, with the grandchildren, and um, so it's quite difficult. We have looked around this area to see whether we'd like to live here. So we know this area quite well, and we don't. Um, no, <laughs> no, I don't mean that, no, don't. Uh, We'd love to, actually. This is absolutely a super place, super place to be. Um, uh, but we've lived in Birmingham 40 years. Uh, 
And uh, initially with the youth ministry, I was telling the folks last night, and then we started a church by mistake um, in 1984 with a group of people that we really just wanted to meet with. And um, every time I said to God, we don't want to start a church, he remained absolutely silent and smiled, and that's all, and, and nothing happened. And then the church developed, and one or two of you here today have been part of that church, and it's quite a large church now in South Birmingham. Um, we handed over the leadership of that five years ago, and we're now um, trying to do something useful with our lives at, in, at this point in life. And so we got to know some of the folks here through a thing called Lead Academy, which we've been running over the last year or so to help church leaders as best we can to um, see their churches grow as, um, in the greatest effectiveness it could be. So that's who we are, um, and that's where we come from, and that's what we're trying to do um, today. Uh, I'll just introduce you to our family. Would you like to meet our family? Well, I'm sorry, the, are you going to meet them? You know, I know you're not interested, but please pretend to be. This is our, our eldest son, Andrew, and his wife, Becky. What's that? No, it's just the light in here. This is our, grand, this is our grandson, uh, Theo, who's four. A lot of potential there, you can see that. And uh, we're working on that this summer. Uh, just not too good on his um, forward stories. This is uh, Naomi, who's uh, two. And this is our other son, Mark and Tam. And their two daughters, Grace, who's um, eight, going on 18. And Hope, who's um, five. So that's our grandchildren. Aren't, aren't they gorgeous? And I know they're nicer than any of your children, but don't worry. I'm sure yours are okay. And... Uh, our youngest son, Mark, and his wife, Tam, are going to Australia to live for two years next year, which is really sad. And it's, um, we're having a battle on them because, uh, for some reason, they want to take their children with them, which is really unfair. Um, that's Lois, uh, who you'll get to know more today, and that's me on holiday on our cruise. <laughs> I want, I'll tell you that's a lie, actually. It's a lie. It wasn't taken this year. It was a couple of years ago. <laughs> I had more hair then. Um, I'll tell you why I got that slide up. It, it, I got it by mistake, actually, because I went on to Google um, to look up Daniel. And uh, that's, that's, that's the second one I got. <laughs> that doesn't do it for you, ladies, does it? it, doesn't, it doesn't, should we go back? Is that better? <laughs> and, uh, um, I was looking for Daniel, and I got Daniel Craig. So let's just move on. If, is that okay now? We can come back to him if you like. And the reason was this, that um, if you were to take a, a, a biblical scenario that fitted roughly where we are today in Western Europe in, in 2012, there are two places you could go. One would be the book of Daniel. Uh, because in the book of Daniel, remember, there's Daniel and his three friends initially in, in the book anyway, who are living in this, uh, in this land that they never wanted to be in. They're taken as exiles into the land. They're very bright young things and work in the university. And, uh, but they're living in a totally alien culture. What they were used to was a monotheistic religion. They knew the Yahweh God. Uh, they were part of the family of God and part of their own family who were worshippers of God. And, and, and they understood all of that. And they were taken out of that into this strange culture with a plurality, plurality of gods, with a different language, a different belief system, a different sense of values. Everything was different. And the remarkable thing about Daniel and his friends was that they affected three dynasties in their lifetime, purely because they lived as followers of Yahweh or followers of Jesus in an alien culture without all the props and the nice things that were going on before. They, had, they lived out their lives. And so it's a, it's a wonderful story. We'll refer to it a little bit later on, but of where we're at today. Or you could go, and this is Peter, by the way. You may not recognize this picture either. It's not a good photograph, but... 
This is taking a Peter up on the roof, and you remember the story about how the, the thing came down that, with all the animals in it and about being unclean and clean. And uh, uh, he was having this vision from God to open the world up to the Gentile world. He goes to Cornelius. And suddenly everything changes from the first nine chapters of Acts where the, the gospel is coming to Jewish people, people who already had a, a Christian background, a, a God-centered background. So the gospel came as a fulfillment of what they already knew. Suddenly now they were going into a world where there was no such background at all. They had to rethink what the gospel was, rethink how to present it. And we were in Athens a few weeks ago and on our trip, and we uh, up on the Acropolis there where the Mars Hill is nearby, where Paul stood up and talked about the unknown God. He had to discover a whole new way of communicating the gospel to a group of people who had no sense of the background of a Yahweh God. And that's where we are today. In Western Europe, things have changed dramatically in my lifetime and in most of your lifetimes too. We have seen a huge change and a shift which is not going back. It's not a tide that goes out and comes in again. It's, it's going out. And I listed last night some of the things that are happening today. Christendom is, is passing away. No longer is Christianity the dominant force in Western Europe. It doesn't shape our society anymore. And we're thinking, oh, isn't it sad? We can't, it's not like it used to be. Let me just encourage you that before it was Christendom, in pre-Christendom days, the first 300 years of Christianity, the church grew probably faster than any time in its life. We could be heading into the most exciting time we've ever had if we don't see this as a disaster. The church has always been more effective from the margins. It's always more effective as a subversive group than it is being the standard thing. Once it moves out of that, suddenly the gospel comes with a great sharpness and clarity that it doesn't have at the moment because Christendom has made it so woolly. Churchianity has covered the whole of the continent. So we can't discern between churchianity and Christianity. And uh, secularism is growing. We, our society is becoming more secular. You know, the whole business about not wearing crosses and stuff like that. It's nothing to do with the religious agenda. You know that. It's to do with the secular agenda. And um, when we, 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 got, we banned Christmas in Birmingham one year, well, we couldn't put Christmas, the name Christmas up anywhere in Birmingham. And um, the people who complained most were the Muslims and the, and the uh, Jews. Because they said, well, if, you, if, if you're going to stop Christians having their celebrations, what are you going to do for us? So please let everybody celebrate. Now we have Christmas in a great, great big do. In fact, the council now pay for us to have Christmas celebrations in town. Um, Postmodernity is here. I won't go into that. Spirituality is thriving. People are very spiritual today, aren't they? People are open to all sorts of things, not to Jesus particularly, but anything, any weird and wonderful thing. People think that's great. And, but, and I mentioned last night the church until now has been declining in this country steadily since 1960. That has something, I think, to do with the whole sexual revolution and everything else that took place then, uh, and it has affected church life in this country. And, but that's, that decline is bottoming out. We've now got, I think, a more refined church in this country. And it's, a great, it's an exciting opportunity for, for the future, what God wants to do. But that's the environment and the world in which we live in, and the world in which uh, we are called to be followers of Jesus. It's not the same world as our grandparents lived in. But being a follower of Jesus might have been in a different environment. Today, this is very, very different. And uh, the reason I uh, picked this title is because I think I'm on a sort of, I don't know if it's a one-man crusade, but I'm on a little bit of a crusade to almost remove the word Christian from our lives <laughs> because I think it's a confusing term. Because any term that has to be qualified by another term has lost its meaning. So as soon as you have to say born-again Christian, or real Christian, or committed Christian, or uh, something like that, or half-baked Christian, or whatever, as soon as you have to use another phrase to describe it, the word itself is insufficient. Does that make sense? 
The second thing is this, that if you ask most people today what it means to be a Christian, that is a good evangelical Christian, you ask them, what does it mean to you to be a Christian? They will say one of two things, probably. It means this, it means to have been, have my sins forgiven and washed clean and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, that's a, an event that's happened to you that has transformed your life. Praise the Lord, and that's correct. The second thing you might say is this, I also have an assurance that I'm going to heaven. If I died tomorrow, I would go and be with Jesus in heaven. Those two things are absolutely part and parcel of the Christian faith. And if you become a Christian, those things are true for you. Your sins have been forgiven, and you are going to heaven. There's a problem with that, because it describes a past event and a future event. And the big question is, what happens in between? And the great danger in church today, in, for Christians, you and I today, is this. Whether we like it or not, we, get, we can easily get a mentality that says, I've been forgiven, I'm going to heaven. Between those two times, let me see if I can find a nice in-group of people who believe what I believe. I'll tuck in alongside them, and that'll keep me safe for the years between. And I'll, on a Monday to Friday, I'll sneak out and go into the whole big bad world, and I'll, but I'll come back into this little group that I've found, and they'll protect me until I get to heaven. Now, that's a slightly caricatured view, but it's a huge danger. That our Christian faith is about a past event, about a future event, and it's about keeping safe in between. And that's what church can easily become. Now, I'm a huge believer in church. You can't have a New Testament Christianity without church, as the community of the saints. But if church becomes a hiding place so that I can actually survive as a Christian until Jesus comes back, we have totally missed the point. And that is the danger of the word Christian. Because that's what it sums up. I'm part of this religious group now that I've joined, and one day in heaven, all you nasty people won't be there, and we'll be just all together on our own. And we'll have a great cornerstone corner in heaven. And it'll be yippee-doo, as long as some of you people aren't there as well. But, um, <laughs> but don't worry, because we're all going to be surprised who's there on that day. And in the early church, you know, the word Christian was given to the Christians. They didn't, they didn't make up that word. Somebody told, oh, you're Christians. That was at Antioch. Before that, they were known as the way. Now, nobody really knows whether the way was a way of life or the way to heaven, as Jesus said, I am the way, or followers of the way. That's how they were described because they were seen as people who were following something. And they were called that name. It's very interesting today that Muslims in Britain who are becoming Christians, as many are through dreams and visions and all sorts of things, um, many of them do not call themselves Christians because Christian is a loaded term. It speaks about the people who came on the Crusades and all of that stuff. So many of them call themselves followers of Isa because Isa in the, in the Quran, as you know, is the name given to Jesus who was recognized by, is recognized by Muslims as a prophet and they become followers of Isa which is actually a much better term than to say you're a Christian. In fact, Christian is a very diversive term within the Muslim world. Just an aside here, while, while, I'm on my, while I'm thinking about it, I heard a lovely story yesterday from a young man who's working in a predominantly Muslim country, a 95% Muslim. I won't tell you where it is. I can't do that, I'm afraid. And um, <clears throat> he said this just this last week or two weeks ago, what happens when these, many, of, many people are Muslims are becoming Christians, but they can't come out and declare themselves because either they will be killed or at least thrown out of their families, but many of them will lose their lives. So they're secret believers, but they're passionate believers. And there's loads of them, he said, all over the place. And that one day it will emerge who they are. And he said, there's one young man who came to Christ, and there was a, there's a church in the area of people who are not part of that culture, and everybody knows they're there. And he said, what happens is some of these people come to Christ, and they want to be baptized, so they sneak, they kind of make a contact with this Christian group, who, who then they go and be baptized, and they're baptized privately, because they can't have any public baptisms. 
because they can't publicly declare their faith. It's just the way it is. But they want to be baptized, so they ask because they have a private baptism. And this young man asked for this because he'd been wonderfully converted through a miraculous intervention of God in his life. He'd been praying for his family. And he went to, and he, it was arranged for a Wednesday in this room somewhere. He rang the day before just to check it was on. And the guy said, I'm sorry, something's happened. We can't baptize you on Wednesday. It'll have to be Friday. And by the way, if you come on Friday, there's somebody else coming as well. Is that okay? We're going to baptize two of you. And he said, well, are you sure this person is really a, a believer? Because I don't want to let anybody know what's happening. And he said, yes, they're definitely a believer. Um, but they're coming as well. And so he turned up on Friday um, quite nervously into this house for his baptism. And they introduced him to this, uh, it was a woman who was also being baptized, who turned out to be his mother. And uh, so the two of them, secretly in their own family, had both been praying for each other and both come to Christ. And what an extraordinary story. And these are the people who are passionate believers and followers of Jesus in a very hard situation. But in Britain today, uh, many of them are, are, are discovering faith, some of them much more publicly in what they're doing um, than, other, than others. But what I'm trying to say is that being a follower of Jesus, to me, it brings back a dynamic. As I wake up in the morning, what am I today? I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus is on the move today. He's doing something today. He's active today. He's going somewhere today. He's doing things today. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I must be going and doing and thinking what he's doing. And that's what we are. When you sign up to be a Christian, it's not joining a club. It's becoming a follower, a disciple of a person who is very much alive and active um, in the world. So Jesus says to the disciples, Matthew's Gospel, to Peter and James and John, come, follow me. And then again in Luke's Gospel, to Levi, Matthew, who's the tax collector, follow me. John's Gospel, to Philip, come and follow me. That's the call on our lives. That's what we signed up to. One day we'll be following Jesus and he'll be, he'll, he'll, we'll walk with him into heaven. But that's up ahead. Now I want to know what is Jesus doing here in Chipping Camden, in um, Burford, in the different places around here. What is Jesus doing here? And there are followers of Jesus. That's a dynamic thing. Filled with the Holy Spirit, following Jesus in a world that he wants to change. Just let me underline this, if I may. When Jesus came to earth, he never intended to start a religion. Christianity was never meant to be a religion. It was meant to be a way of life. We have made it into a religion. The greatest opponent of Christian faith is religious faith. It's religion. And the Christian religion can easily confuse us. I'm not talking about church here. I'm talking about Christianity and all its framework can easily be a distraction from the real heart of the matter, which is a radically changed life by men and women and young people who have decided to follow Jesus in their hearts and in their lives. And for the Muslim, by the way, and these people in these countries, this is a much sharper thing than it is for us. Because it's one or the other. It's live or die. It's follow Jesus passionately or nothing. And that is what it is for us today. And I think that the mark of, of, as we pray for revival in this community and in the rest of Britain and Europe in the coming years, it is, it is, it is about the moving of the Holy Spirit. And I've been part of sovereign moves of the Spirit. I understand that. But it's supremely about an army of ordinary people who are passionately following Jesus in a world that he loves and longs to save. And I think it's a bit of a, it's a changeover in our attitude and in our hearts. Let me talk in this first session just to sort of set the scene a bit more about, uh, about being followers of Jesus and being led by Jesus. And one of the difficulties for many of us is that we assume that when we talk about following Jesus, we're talking about necessarily places. Where does Jesus want me to go? What does he want me to do? I want to suggest to you that supremely being a follower of Jesus is not even about going or doing, it's about being. 
that the follower of Jesus is a radically changed life. It's a different way of living. It's a different value system. It's a whole different attitude to the life you live, that almost the going is, is immaterial. So if you put your hands in the hands of a loving God, a father who cares for you, listen, he will get you where he wants you to be. Why are you in such a stew about it? We get so caught up about guidance. Can you imagine God looking down one day, and he's got his angels gathering. Oh, there's Philip. Oh, he's got to make a decision today. He could go right or left. If he goes left, he's in real shtuck. In fact, I don't think he'll get back on course for years. But if he goes right, he's going to be okay. Let's see what he's supposed to do. Oh, goody, goody, he's gone right. Fantastic. He's going to be okay. We can track him down there. And there's John. Oh, no, no, no. John's gone left. Stupid idiot. Well, nothing we can do about him. He's in for a right old mess for the rest of his life. And let's see, what's she going to do? Which college is she going to go? Oh, she's picked the wrong one. Oh, dear. Do you think God plays lottery with you? He's your father, for goodness sakes. Uh, I, we have this little phrase in our own church, tight but right. In other words, God's, when God works in your have you, have, do you know he's a last-minute God? Have you noticed that? I tell you why, because he's in control. If you're in control, you can be as last-minute as you want. You can stop the universe if you want to get things right. God doesn't, God doesn't need to do things ahead of time. He just does it at the right time, because we learn to trust that way. But if God's in charge of your life, do you really, really honestly believe he's going to abandon you to mess it up? Now, it might be hard. It might be difficult. We'll come to that in a moment. But surely he can get you in the right place at the right time. Have you ever been in a situation where you think, phew, if that hadn't happened, if I hadn't been there, if I hadn't had that chance meeting, it wasn't a chance meeting. It wasn't a casual thing. God didn't just, phew, we made it. He plans things. He orders things. We had an extraordinary meeting. The other day, I was up in the north of England, went out to lunch with somebody. We were going to one place. We couldn't get in. We went to another place, and, and we were too late, so we decided not to go there. We went to a third place for lunch. And in the lunch occasion, we met a young man who came in, and we had the most extraordinary conversation with him, as if this was the one moment in his life he needed to hear about Christ. Now, if we'd picked the first restaurant or the second restaurant, you could say, well, what a, what a, how lucky was that? It wasn't lucky at all. God shapes our lives. He's in charge of us, for goodness sake. So somehow we need to learn to stand back from that, not to get too worried. I, I'm, you may disagree with me, but I'm less sure about the whole business of God's per plan for our lives. I think it's a little bit more vague than that. Someone said to me the other day, what happens if I marry the wrong person? Somebody once said, if you marry the wrong person, treat them like the right person, they'll become the right person. And I said to them, have you ever thought about this? If there's a right person for you to marry... And you don't marry the right person. You marry the wrong person. That puts the whole of the world out of sync. Have you noticed that? It's true. Because if somebody else has married the person you were meant to marry, you've got to marry somebody you weren't meant to marry. So you're in trouble. So most of us have married the wrong person. There you are. <laughs> if you believe that. Here's a, this scenario. When you go to Safeways, or it's Waitrose down here probably, isn't it? This is posh down here. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, sorry. When you go to the shop... And you, you, you have to choose a cereal packet or whatever. Do you pray about that? Lord, would you like me to have cornflakes or Weetabix today? Oh, what do you think? Oh, I sense Weetabix. Okay, I don't like Weetabix, but God has shown me to have Weetabix. Please, I hope you're not into that. When you go to buy a car, do you pray about which car to buy? You women, you pray about what color to get, I know, but men decide <laughs> what actual motor to have. Uh, do you do that or do you just choose? If you're going to buy a house, do you pray about that? Oh, I think so. This is a big investment. Where is the difference between the cornflakes packet and the house? Could you just tell me at which point do you think God says, that's when I'm interested? Is it in, where, where would you put it along the line? I don't know. Lois and I don't often have words of prophecy given to us, but we did recently, somebody prayed, because we were looking what to do in the next stage of our lives, 
And God said, I think rightly in a prophecy, accurately in a prophecy to us, you can go where you like. I'll bless you. Well, that's nice in a way, isn't it? Because you think, well, I'm going to be blessed anywhere I go. But actually, rather he gave you a house number and address, wouldn't you? Be easier. Um, but but that's, we're growing up, we're grown-ups now. And we don't need to worry too much. It's lovely in Acts chapter 16. If you read that passage, Paul says, I'm going to go here. Oh, I can't go there. I'm going to go here. Nope, can't go there. Where do I go? And he has a dream at night, come over to Macedonia. And uh, there's a sense of he's, he's finding the way. There's a lovely passage in 2 Corinthians, which is quite worrying, really, 2 Corinthians 3, where it says, um, God opened a door of opportunity for me, but I chose not to go there. Hello? <laughs> door of opportunity. I decided to go and find Titus. And then he goes on the next passage, if you read it, it says this, but actually everywhere I go, I'm a fragrance unto God. He says, in other words, it doesn't matter where I go, I'm going to bless people. Isn't that liberating? So actually the call of God on our lives has less to do with being in the right place at the right time because God will get you there and bothering about all of that. Following Jesus today, what should I do? I went with a guy in a car once years ago. and I, he was, I don't know, he was, he was a lovely he was a spiritual leader apparently. He was driving. <laughs> and he, and I, he kept saying, Lord, do you want me to pass this car? And shall I change gear? And I said, gosh, grow up, just do it. But drive more safely. I wouldn't drive with him again. Um, if you've got have your Bible with you, would you like to turn with me to, to, to probably the most well-known passage of Scripture in the entire Bible? Most non-Christians who have never been to church, never had any time for God, but have been to a funeral or a wedding would have read this passage, Psalm 23. And I'd like to take the soppiness out of it just for a moment or two, if, if I may. And this is a sort of introductory to, to talking about followers of Jesus here. You don't even need to look it up, do you? Because we all know it by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Let me just tell you how that psalm came about because I happen to have revelation on this. David was sitting out on the... On the um, uh, mountainside one day. He had a rather a hard day with his sheep. They were being a bit sheep-like. And um, <clears throat> he sat down, having had his uh, uh, meal of beans on toast, and he just, was, they were all quietly asleep, and he just thought, oh, nice to have a bit of quiet. And he thought to himself, these sheep have a pretty good life. I take them everywhere. I decide where they're going to eat food and drink stuff. When, I, when we're in difficulties, I look after them. I sh they don't have to get up and worry about anything in the morning. They just get up and do their thing, chew the food. And when I'm off on a walk, they come with me. I mean, what a great life. I'm the one who sweats about them. I'm worrying, where are we, we going to go to get more food? Where are we going to get water that isn't too bubbly? Where are we going to go and find... Um, uh, uh, there's danger up ahead with wolves. I'm the one who's going to fight off the wolves for them. Listen here. This, I get a pretty rum deal being the shepherd around here. So he's whinging away. And... Um, He's thinking to himself, well, I wish someone would do this for me. And it all goes quiet. And suddenly he thinks, my goodness, God does it for me. And then he said, the Lord's my shepherd. Did you know how that came about? That's the, that's the truth. I, I know it's true. I was there. No. Not. <laughs> but that's where this is, this is a sort of thinking here. It's a, it's a revelation. The Lord, God in heaven is my shepherd, and I'm the shepherd of these sheep. And I'm the one that God thinks about every day and thinks I need to find some food for him and some water for him. I need to look after him. I've got to beat off the, the demons who are after him. I'm the one who's caring for you. You think you're worried about your life? Look what I'm doing. 
God doesn't even slumber or sleep. He doesn't spend the whole night worrying about you. He's thinking about us. And that's the revelation to David. So he says, this is extraordinary. The Lord, the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, sitting out under the stars, thinking of the God who made all of this, the great and powerful, majestic God, who only has to speak a word and the heavens come into being, who says, let there be light and there is light. This great, extraordinary, magnificent God is my David's personal shepherd. Wow. So no wonder he said after that, I shall not be in want. How could I be if God looks after me? The greatest revelation every human being can have is to discover the truth that God is your father. If you as a parent have any concept, and I know we all do, of what it feels like to be a parent of children, you only have a smidgen of what it is to have God as father. And I wrote a book years ago called God is My Father out of the revelation I had one day sitting at my desk looking out onto the garden seeing my two boys playing in the garden and having such a great time and then beating each other up and then crying and, then, and thinking I feel such an extraordinary emotion towards them. I feel like that still today and I feel almost even more so towards my grandchildren. An extraordinary sense of commitment and love. By the way, I think it's unfair. I thought when you had children you only had to look after them for 18 years. I thought that was the deal. <laughs> goes on for life for jolly sakes and then we've got another generation to care about but that's because there's a caring heart and I feel a care for them I'm bigger than them I can care for them and look after them I remember once when our young son was small and we were dodging the traffic in Kings Heath in South Birmingham and he turned to me at about the age of five and said dad I hope you don't do that when I'm not around and uh, <laughs> so but I was caring for him actually um, and, and the revelation was, that's what God is to us. You see, if you've become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, God is fathering you. There's never a moment when he takes his eyes off you, when he cares for you. In the hard times and the good times, God is fathering you. He has your best at heart. That's why he says to Daniel, through the, the letter he wrote through Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, or I know the thoughts I have for you. They are for, thoughts for your welfare that God is fathering us. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we'll only be, have that sense of radical living if we understand deep in our hearts that there is a God who is my Father. That that will never, ever change. That's where I get my significance from. God says to me, I love you, you are my child. And that comes by the Holy Spirit, by the way. Uh, Romans 8 tells us that. That the Spirit comes upon us and we cry out, Abba, Father. That is the authentic cry of the spirit-filled Christian. I know that there's a father who cares for me. And the greatest challenge in our lives is to doubt that. And we'll find things happen in our lives and we say, where is God now? Where is God now? This is happening. If there was a God of love, this wouldn't be happening. Who said? Who said? Never question the truth that God is the God of love and then you will find the God of love at work in your heart and your life. And so no wonder he says, I shall not be in want. I may not have everything I need. I may, not have all the, I may not be able to go on a cruise every year or every week or whatever. I might not be able to do all that sort of stuff. But I have this confidence I will never, ever be in one. When Lois and I first came to Birmingham in 1972, uh, we had no visible means of support in terms of income. For 14 years, we never wrote a letter asking for money. We never had um, any, any salary. 
but for 14 years, God looked after us in the most remarkable way. It wasn't easy, I want to tell you. But we look back on that, and that reminds us that there's a God. Who, we would not be alive today. We would have died by now uh, through lack of food and care. But there is a God who provides for us because we, we went on the basis that if God is God, then he can look after us. And if he's not God, he won't. And if he's not looking after us in Birmingham, we'll go somewhere else. But he pr- continued to provide for us. It doesn't mean you have abundance. It doesn't mean you have everything, but it means that God cares for you. And I'm, I'm laboring this point because I don't think you can be, you won't have, the, you won't have the, the, the security to walk out and trust Jesus and follow him if that isn't deeply in your heart, that you're living under that umbrella, as it were, of the love of God for you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Statement. Full stop. What encouragement for David. And then he goes on to say this. This is how, what happens when I am led by the, the, the shepherd. Because in those days, as you know, Today, when you go out and look at shepherds and sheep, if you can find them anywhere in Britain, uh, we have a, an odd model, really, because the, sh- the, sh- the sheep are, are uh, in, in pens and everything else, and when they move on, you have a shepherd who sort of chivies them along. He's at the back, come on, shh, come on, or with a dog or something. Woof, 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 and the sheep do this. It's a completely different concept from the New Testament, where you've got a whole lot of different uh, sheep, groups of sheep out on the mountainside belonging to different shepherds, and the shepherd says, I'm off. And they hear his voice, and they follow him. And they go where he goes. And, and where is he going? Let me just tell you what he, the, the, his, the list of things he wants to do in your life. Number one, he'll take, take you to the place of feeding. Because God's concern for you, now you've started on this adventure, is that you have food to eat and drink, because he wants to strengthen you, and to help you to become the person you're meant to be. How does he do that? He takes you to food, and he gives you drink. What is the food? He takes you to his word. God leads us to his word continually to be fed and to feed on his word. And that's why the word of God is so important, sustain us, to strengthen us. And can I just point out here, by the way, because I've had a number of people say to me in our own church over the years, I don't get fed very much here. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Some of you preachers have heard that. Oh, you don't feed me. This church doesn't feed me. Listen, at what age did your children stop feeding on you? When they, when they were weaned. From then on, you expected them feed themselves. Near Naomi, who's two and a half, she sort of feeds herself. I mean, a, about a third of it goes in, but it's sort of splayed around the place. And, but she's learning to feed herself. And I happen to say to some Christians, grow up. You're not, the, have a lovely Sunday sermon preached to you. It's gracious and wonderful. And I hope you take a lot from it. And, but, but you've got to feed on that yourself. And you've got to work on it in your own life. But we should be feeding ourselves. We've, we've got Bibles. We've got the Word. And letting the Word transform us and to change us, becoming more like Jesus. Jesus takes us to his Word because he wants us to be changed. And we're changed by the Word. We'll come more to that later on. But as you allow the Word to change you, where the Word conflicts with your own life, and you take the teachings of the Word and you apply it into your life, that's how you're being changed. He takes you to a place of green pastures, a place of feeding by the way, I've also heard another phrase. This is what pastors hear these phrases. We don't get deep teaching here. I've, I was a, a, met a pastor not very long ago. Actually, I met him in the gents somewhere in London. And, uh, and we're, <laughs> he was chatting to me. He said, oh, and this is a huge church. where la- Large numbers of students were coming. It's a well-known church. And he said, you know, I keep hearing people say to me, we don't get deep teaching in this church. I said, oh, my gosh. I said, it's everywhere. I said, but you've got to remember this. 
the, the sea, it has nothing to do with the seed. It's to do with the depth of the soil when the seed goes in. So what they're saying is nothing to do with the seed you're giving them. It's something to do with the soil of their own hearts. That's what they're condemning themselves. Because if the teaching isn't deep enough, it's nothing to do with the seed. It's to doing what's in their own life. And, and you had to say, if, if, you're not getting, if you're not having deep teaching, it's because you're not allowing it to go deep. Listen, in marriage, husbands love your wives as, the church, as Christ says. What, which of those words do you not understand? Husbands love your wives. Is that complicated? Is that deep or is that superficial? I'm not sure. It's deep because I've got to make it work out in my marriage for 40 years. And we've got to work those things out. Forgive one another. Is that deep teaching or superficial teaching? Because there's only three words there, or two words, forgive, three words, forgive one another. I think we understand all those three words. That's as deep as you allow it to go. The depth is in you. And we become changed. And followers of Jesus are people who take God's word seriously and say, this is the way I intend to live my life. We'll look at that later. And then the, 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 by still waters, what's that? That's to do with the Spirit, isn't it? It's to do with drinking, regularly drinking of the Spirit. It's not to do actually with high-powered worship services, and they're great. We all love to worship the Lord, lift our hands and everything else. It's to do with a heart that is open to the Spirit of God. And by the way, the primary work of the Spirit of God in you is not to enable you to speak in tongues, it's to enable you to be holy, because he's called the Holy Spirit. It's, the clue is in the word, by the way. <laughs> he could have been called the tongue-speaking spirit if he wanted to be, or the dancing spirit, or, all that, or the gooey-feeling spirit. He's actually called the Holy Spirit because actually he comes into our lives to help us with holiness. So I will lead you, he says, by, he leads me um, by, in, to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. And one of the great joys of being part of a community and the churches you're part of is that I suspect you're part of those churches because you found some green pastures here. And actually you find a place where you can receive living water. That's why you're here. Um, most of the churches, I think the four, of you are, four or five churches are Baptist churches. I doubt many of you are Baptists. Do you even know what a Baptist is? It's somebody who gets baptized. So there you are. And, and, and we're all Baptists really uh, at heart. And we're all Anglican as well. But, but, um, but it's, it's not the denomination, is it? You've come because of the life. You've come because God has led you to a place of feeding. So feed. And he's paid for watering, so get watered. Because you need those things as you go out into the, the world Monday to Friday if you're going to be changed and be a radical disciple for Jesus. And then he goes on to say, um, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Where's Jesus leading you? Let me just tell you this. He is leading you to a place where you learn to live righteously. In other words, he's leading you to a place of holiness. God's commitment to us, this may come as a shock to you, is not to do with happiness, it's to do with holiness. If you came on board to follow Jesus because you thought you'd be happier, then you followed the wrong person. You probably will be, but interesting, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about the Beatitudes, happiness is never the thing we're to seek after. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What is the thing that makes you happy? The kingdom of God. How do you get to the kingdom of God? By poverty in spirit. So it, it, happiness is a byproduct of following Jesus. It's not the thing we follow Jesus to get. Or because it's not the thing he's giving to us. We, we have a, we joy, of course, and it's great to follow Jesus. And I think being a Christian is the most fun thing in life. I think it's the most, I think it's, it's the most glorious thing to be a Christian. But you're not there to say, oh, I'm not, not very happy. Something's wrong. Pardon? I don't think a person in jail or a person living in those Muslim situations is a bundle of happiness all the time. But the presence of Jesus is what's promised to us. And the, the walk of holiness... It's not just what you do, it's how you do it. 
It's not to do the right things, but to do things right. It's not where to live, but how to live. It's not where to go, but how to go. It's not about using people to make money. It's about using money to make people. So God's leading of us is always into paths of righteousness. He's leading us to live right lives, which is a process. Micah 6.8, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What is this? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he requires of us. Simply to follow righteousness. To seek to do what is right in life. And then he goes on to say, um, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Um, no, I've missed a bit out here. He leads me beside quiet waters. I missed this, sorry. He restores my soul. Everyone who comes to Christ comes as a dysfunctional human being. Um, um, is anybody here who came perfect? Possibly not. And uh, we all come dysfunctional because we've been battered and bruised by life and we've been born in, in a sinful condition. So we come all messed up. So when we get, give our lives to Christ, one of the processes that takes place, he takes us and he starts to restore us. You know what restoration is? It's restoring something to its original condition. Jesus is on a process in your life to restore you to what he intended you to be. And that's sometimes quite hard, by the way. If you go and watch a furniture restorer, they work pretty hard. Sometimes they have to remove a whole lot of stuff. They have to beat it down. They shape it up. And often God has to do things in our lives that are quite hard and difficult, takes us through difficult times because he's restoring us, our souls. What's our soul? Let me just remind you what our soul is. It's our mind, our thinking processes. Our thinking processes had to be restored. If you've spent, like I did, 19 years of my early life believe in, and not believing in a God who cared for me, so you, your whole life is centered around looking after yourself, there's nobody else out there to help you, and suddenly you, you come to Christ, you've got to reshape your thinking. You have to think again. Now I'm living in the context of a God. Now I'm understanding a God who loves me. I have to rethink that there's a God. I have to think about myself differently. You know, there's a, that great story of, of, um, of Gideon in the, um, when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, Arise up, a, a man of valor. And Gideon's thinking, who's this? Because his whole thinking about himself has been so squashed down and so negative. He's, he's in the wrong mindset. And part of growing in Christian life is to have your thinking changed. The way we see life, the way we see other people, the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we see God. It's a transformation. Be transformed by, by the renewal of your mind, uh, uh, Romans chapter 12. It's a process of, of rethinking. And that's a disciple of Jesus, the follower of Jesus, someone who's being, whose mind is being changed in their thinking patterns. Boy, it doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it never, it never ends. Even when we, right at the end of our lives, we're still being changed. But it's a process going on. And that's part of the leading. You let Jesus lead you. He's going to lead you into situations which are going to help you to rethink things, to see life differently, and to change your will. Because, you know, most of us, when we come to Christ, our will's all over the place. We say yes to things and no to things, and we don't say yes or no to anything. We just get sort of pushed around. And suddenly, when you become a Christian, you're, you're, God is requiring you to discover your will again, that you're a rational human being. I can say no to that and yes to this. I can say no to sin, and I can say yes to righteousness, where before you can't, you just sort of messed about, pulled about by anything that's going, and suddenly, you, so your will becomes rather weak and flabby, and God comes to restore your will, so you decide things, no, I won't do that, I won't go that way, 
I won't make that choice. Yes, I'll make this choice. I'll do this thing. A disciple of Jesus is somebody who's not a victim, but sees somebody, a man or a woman, who makes decisions and choices. But we have to learn to do that. It's a restoration of the will. It's a restoration of the emotions. Many of us, and I'll talk about this with the men this afternoon a little bit, most of us are messed up emotionally. Most of us men are a complete basket case when we come to Christ emotionally. I was brought up taught never to cry. All the years of my upbringing at school, don't cry. No, I'm not allowed to cry. I cry more now than I've ever cried in my life. I may cry today. I'm just trying to get it all out. There's all the water inside me that needs to get out. But it's a whole emotional thing. I, I'm, I'm not whole. Jesus was so wonderful. He laughed. We, we're not told when he laughed, but we're sure he laughed. He had to laugh, didn't he? What, he's, what do you create when, when the Spirit of God comes into you and, and in our lives? We laugh. It's part of laughter. It's part of life. So Jesus laughed. I, my theory is this. That when Jesus said, verily, verily, which he said quite a bit, I think what he was saying was, now, seriously, now. <laughs> I'm not joking at this moment. <laughs> Everything up to now has been flippant, but now this is serious. I, I must have been great fun to be with Jesus. And we know that he wept. He was a man who was emotionally free. He wasn't uh, uh, dominated by his emotions, but he was emotionally free. So there's a great liberation that comes to us, a healing process that God is doing in our lives. And he's doing it. He's restoring our souls. So to follow Jesus is not just about, do I buy cornflakes today and do I go to this shop or go there? Because he'll get us there. It's about following Jesus. He's actually dealing with something inside me because he wants me to be a radically transformed human being. Because I want to, he wants us to be able to say to the world, there's another way to live. Not that I'm perfect, not that I've achieved that, but I'm a man or woman in process. There's something going on in me I'm beginning to discover what a human being is meant to be. And then he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This is such an important part of this. Because I used to think years ago, whenever I read this psalm, I thought, what a stupid sheep. That poor shepherd, that stupid, stupid sheep wandering off into the valley, and the poor shepherd has to go and wrench him out again. What are you doing? I told you not to go down into these nasty valleys. Come back. How did that sheep get in the valley? Because he followed the shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. As you follow the shepherd, the likelihood is at points in your life, he will lead you through some very dark places. And he has led you there. Because he has a deeper work to do. And what happens in the dark place? I am with you. You will find Christ the closest in your life at the darkest moments in your life. Think of Daniel's three friends who, are, who loved the Lord with all their heart and mind. What was the most profound experience of the presence of God in their lives? Unquestionably, in the fiery furnace, there was a fourth man in the furnace. God came right up close to them. And the psalmist David knew all about this. He had he, he'd been betrayed by his son. Can anything be worse than what happened to him with his son Absalom? It's a horrendous story. The pain of that, the despair you read in the Psalms, the depression that was in his life, the confusion often, wondering what was going on. Sometimes he felt distance from God. David was a man who experienced all of these emotions. That's why we have the Psalms, because it's, it's a fantastic revelation of a man living, following God. But in the midst of all of that, he found the presence of God. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear nothing, no evil, because you're with me. And I've often said this to people, the only promise God makes to you, really, when you become a Christian, when you become a follower, is that I will be with you. 
If you think he's promised you wealth and health and all this sort of stuff, you have misread the New Testament. The only thing he promises, the only thing, between now and heaven, I'll be with you. There's no guarantee what sort of a life you're going to go through. You might be rich, healthy, everything wonderful. You may be poor, you may struggle with your health, you may lose your job, you may be redundant. All these things might happen to you in life. But this is my promise to you. I will be with you. That's the small print. If you didn't read it, you need to read it. But isn't the small print wonderful? Isn't actually that's all we really need to hear? Isn't that all we need to know? I'm going to be with you. It's okay. I'll be with you. Isn't that what a child likes to hear from its parents? It's okay, I'm, I'm coming with you. I'll be with you. I mean, if you were going into, as a child going into an exam, you know, all nervous and everything else for a little exam, and your mum and your dad says to you, who's an who's a, who's a, um, you know, astrophysicist, and it's a maths exam, and he says, don't worry, I'm, I'll be with you. That's all you need to know. Don't care what the questions are. Don't question how hard it's going to be or how long it's going to be. Dad's going to be with me. That's all you need to know, that I will be with you. And that's the joy. If you're following Jesus, you know he will be with you. That's the promise. And that's the promise here. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and staff give me comfort, because I can see in your hands you have all the equipment to deal with the enemy. That comforts me. I can see any lion or bear who comes along is going to get his comeuppance and going to get beaten up. <laughs> this is a complete aside, just flips through my silly brain. I met a couple the other day who said to me that they'd been in America and uh, they'd been in a, in a game in, a, in one of these parks and uh, they were told what to do when they met a bear and they were on the path one day and a bear stood right in front of them. It's a great grizzly bear and uh, as they were standing by the side of the road, a lorry came around the corner, wham, and hit the bear, bang, and ran right over the bear and killed the thing. And so they went up and didn't know what to do. So they rang the, the, the park ranger, and the ranger said, well, just stay with it for the moment, please, because we don't want anybody else having an accident, and I'll be there in 15 minutes, and we'll deal with the situation. So while they were waiting for the van to come, they took photographs. They stood on this bear and had photographs taken. They sat on it like this, all this sort of stuff. They got all these pictures to show for it. And then they got off, and they were standing by the side of the road, and suddenly the bear sat up. True story, and shook itself down like this and trotted off into the forest. So, when the ranger arrived to him a few minutes later, there was no bear. And they've got these photographs of themselves standing. Can you imagine? Anyway, where did that come from? Um, if, you read, if you read 2 Corinthians 4 and other passages like it in the New Testament, you'll discover that Paul's life was not a bed of roses. And he was a follower of Jesus, passionately following Jesus. And they did everything to him apart from kill him. Well, later on, of course, he died. But, but uh, in prison, beaten, shipwrecked, and everything else. Um, but a passionate follower of Jesus. And that, those were the consequences of living in that particular way. And certainly, if you read the book of Daniel, that's what you find. There's people thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. That can't have been fun. Because they, they were rescued, wonderfully rescued, but they might not have been. In fact, they said, you remember, that the friends of Daniel said, and even if God doesn't rescue us. They didn't know who he was going to or not. They didn't say, oh, our God will get us out of here because Christ, uh, people who follow God are never burned in fiery furnaces. It's not true. You read the book of uh, 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 Hebrews chapter 11, the men of faith, these great men of faith, who, who, who experienced the extraordinary deliverance power of God. I mean, extraordinary deliverance. And then you go on a bit further and it says, and some of them were sawn in two. What's that about? 
and read in Acts of the Apostles on the day that Peter, is it Peter or John, was released from prison, the miraculous re- release from prison. There's, a, there's one little phrase, by the way, which is, you, you miss it. And James was put to the sword. Hello there. Hello. Where was God in that? Welcome him into heaven, probably. But those two things are in juxtaposition, aren't they? This extraordinary deliverance. And here, and James is put to the sword. Where was, where's God? He's there. He's in the situation. In fact, when people often say when there's a tragedy or something happens, they say, well, where is God in that? That's the right question. But the wrong phrase, theology, the wrong emphasis. It's not where is God, is the question. I wonder where God is in this. Because when you look, you'll find him. Some friends of ours who went out after the tsunami, of the major tsunami uh, that was out in Indonesia in that area that caused such damage, where everybody was saying, where's God? They came back saying, we have seen God. The most extraordinary interventions of God were happening all over the place in that area if you went out to find out what was going on. So rather than say, where's God? They said, where's God? <laughs> Let's look and find where God is in this because surely he is at work. A whole village came to Christ because of the tsunami through some people that, that, that I've been in touch with. Scary stuff, but it's part and parcel of our lives. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. There are no, I'm sorry to worry you, but there's no guarantees of anything apart from his presence. But that is sufficient. Because when you've known the presence of God, you can, you'll do anything and go anywhere. And you think, why do people suffer like they do in other countries? Why do they prepare to go to jail, to go to prison? Why do they do all this stuff? I'll tell you why. And I remember meeting a Chinese guy who was in prison, had been in prison in China for many, many years, and his job in the prison was to get into the sewage up to his chest. He said every single day they had to clear out these sewage places. And he said, he said we sang hymns in the sewage. Why? Because the presence... Why did he do that? Why would he even go that far? Because of the presence... Because God was with him. And that's what it was to be a devout follower of Jesus. So we're going to stop for coffee in a moment. But that's, a, that's the beginning, if you like. Maybe enough, you might like to go now. It's going to get worse. No, it's, it's going to get better. Let's pray together as we go into, into, into coffee break. Father, we thank you that remember when Jesus t- said to the disciples, come and follow me, he, he never told them where he was going. Maybe it was just as well. But they wanted to be with him. And I pray, Lord Jesus, we'll see today afresh and seeing that it's a great joy to, to follow you. And whether it's to that lovely place of feeding and fresh water or whether it's through the valley. We want to be able to say to a world outside that life with God is the only way to live. And we want people to see it in us. Let that be the ca- case, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>